Would you please pray with me? Lord God, what a privilege it is once again to be with your people here together on this, your day. And I pray that as we come together this morning, that you would speak a new, refreshing truth into each and every one of our lives in a way that we would know it was you. Come Holy Spirit, think our thoughts. May my words be yours, that you take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Over the last few years, the Sherman family has developed a wonderful fondness for northern Michigan. Um, It's just a beautiful area of the country, and I highly recommend it if you ever get to go up there. But particularly the Traverse City area. In August, not in March, Um, I encourage you. It is just gorgeous, and there's so many fun things to do up there for families and what have you. But we have particularly become fond of the Old Mission Peninsula, which divides Traverse City Bay from Western Bay to Eastern Bay. Because it's full of rich history and beauty, but it also has 20-something vineyards. And it is grows some of the most beautiful and wonderful wine you've ever tasted. It's amazing, and I encourage you to do that. Among our favorites is the Mari Vineyard. It's the first vineyard up the peninsula. It looks like an Italian villa. And they have really got a wonderful red blend kind of Cabernet Merlot mix called Perfectus. And it is to die for! It is wonderful. So it's going to be a new tradition at Christmas dinner for us because we just say, oh, we got it. You know, this is good. We're always looking for new traditions. So Kimmy and I, when we were up there, the kids went back and we said, we're going to buy and we're going to save it for a special occasion. So we did. And then the kids came. As you can tell, they come for, for worship on Sundays and they go over to the house. And one Sunday, about three weeks ago, they recognized the bottle was no longer there. And they said, hey, you drank the perfectus? And I said, it was a special occasion. (laughs) Because it doesn't take long when you have such really good wine. Because you taste regular wine, and it's not even close. You taste it, and it's, this is the real deal. Where, you know, the the schlock that we regularly drink isn't even close. It's like literally Mogan David. You know, it's, it's just, you know, not even close. And in a similar way, Paul Francis Schaeffer discusses the difference between the real deal Christian and then the person who calls themselves a Christian and they're not. The quality that distinctly sets them apart from non-believers isn't going through the ritual of baptism, isn't going through First Communion, isn't going through Confirmation, It isn't wearing a cross around your neck. It isn't putting an ichthus, the fish symbol, on your car. Those are symbols. They're good. But the mark of a true Christian is unconditional love for one another within the church. Arthur Pink, in his commentary on John, says it this way. Love is the badge of Christian discipleship. It is not knowledge, nor orthodoxy, nor fleshly activities. But supremely, love, which identifies a follower of Jesus Christ. 
as the disciples of the Pharisees were known by their phylacteries. You know what a phylactery is? Some of you do. It's that box that even Jews today, some Jews in Jerusalem, wear and they tie it on their forehead and it holds little scriptures in it. In obedience, in their view, to the command to bind the scripture on your forehead, they literally do that. And that goes all the way back to the first century. And so as the disciples of the Pharisees were known by their phylacteries, as the disciples of John were known by their baptism, and every school by its particular distinctive, so the mark of a true Christian is love. And that, a genuine active love, not in mere words, but in deeds. And so in today's Second lesson that Bob read for you in John 13, Jesus gives his 11 disciples a mandate that adds a new dimension of the meaning of love. And this new dimension not only changes lives in a compelling way, it shows the world that we belong to Jesus. So I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to John 13. And as you're doing that, just a quick reminder, we're in a series on worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth. So we have spent the last month talking about what is worship, why we worship, how we worship last week, and today we're going to talk about preparing for worship, prioritizing worship, both individually and corporately. And so here in this section of John 13, Judas has been outed and he leaves. And so these 11 disciples are left there, and Jesus discusses two main topics that help get first things first for all believers. Before you can even begin to talk about worship, we got to get this right. All right? So what Jesus informs us here is his purpose for being here and his command. First, his purpose. Jesus, in John 13 has declared that one of him will betray him. Judas has been outed as that person and leaves. The the disciples aren't quite sure yet. And so then he speaks about another departure. Judas has just departure. Now he's talking about another departure. Verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in himself and glorify him at once. Five times in this passage is some use of the word glorify by Jesus. And for Jesus, the death he knows that he's going to accomplish, as painful as it is, as gruesome as it is, as bloody as it will be, from heaven's vantage point, it's glorious. And Jesus knows that this is difficult for these 11 to hear. For they've been with him every day now for three years. Can you imagine? Three years every day eating with Jesus, ministering with Jesus, serving with Jesus, seeing Jesus do everything he's done. Three years would have gone by like that. I mean, it was three years ago, guys, that we were back at Bay Middle School. Kind of floundering, you know? And here we are today, and what a wonderful work God is doing among us. And it's been like yesterday. We've been through a lot. Well, so had they. And so it was hard for their ears to hear what Jesus is saying here. So he patiently, 
shows them some paternal love. As he says in verse 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. In shifting his tone in verse 33, he goes from the mysterious to being very direct as he calls them little children. This is the only time in John's gospel that that phrase is used by Jesus. But if you're with us in the Avon Lake group, you know as we walk through 1 John, John uses this over and over and over to remind the early church that we are his beloved little children. Not because of anything we've done, but it's all that Jesus has done. So Jesus uses this phrase repeatedly. Or John uses this phrase repeatedly in his first letter. And in doing so, with Jesus, he just uncovers three hardcore facts for these disciples. First, the cross is imminent. Two, people will look for him and be confused. And three, nobody will be able to accomplish what Jesus is going to accomplish on their behalf. And so the finality of those words would pose an enormous problem for these disciples. I mean, after all, how will they go on without Jesus? What would their mission be without Jesus? What would their identity be? Because Jesus is talking about the cross, and they get it. Because he's mentioned it before, that he's going to go to the cross. And he's mentioning to them and to us, the cross is the way for salvation. Now, when we think of the cross, ladies and gentlemen, it's just kind of an afterthought, isn't it? We see them everywhere. Crosses on top of churches, people wear them around their necks. But that ought not to be the case. Because if it's so familiar, we tend to lose the wonder of all that our Lord has done for us. It is mind-blowing symbol, the cross. God entered into our world in Jesus Christ and died the death that we deserve to die so we can have eternal life and life abundantly in the present. Those are God's words, by the way. Those aren't mine. I don't make this stuff up. And so the cross, honestly, in the first century, was the least likely symbol that the early Christians would use, and yet they did. The Jews and the Romans would have aborted it. It would be to our sensitivities as if someone had a syringe or an electric chair on a necklace. The, it would be regarded with utter horror. John Stott writes, the earliest Christians wish to commemorate as central to the understanding of Jesus neither his birth or his youth, neither his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection nor his reign, nor his gift of the Spirit, but his death, his crucifixion. It would have been crazy, given the culture's view of the cross, yet that's exactly what the early church focused on. Stott continues, the fact that the cross became the Christian symbol and that Christians stubbornly refused, in spite of the ridicule, to discard it in favor of something less offensive can have only one explanation. It means that the centrality of the cross originated in the mind of Jesus himself. 
from his birth to his death, Jesus had the cross in mind for you. And he was no helpless victim. He willingly went to the cross for you and for me. See, our salvation costs us nothing. But to live as the Christian life will cost us everything. Because it was Jesus also who said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that's where American Christianity falls short. And in our day, it's important to reground ourselves on the reality of the cross. And I'm not talking about being baptized. I'm not talking about getting First Communion. I'm not talking about being confirmed. Those are outward signs and they are good. But the reality for each and every one of us, have we truly placed our trust on the cross of Jesus Christ alone? That's where it starts. And that's what matters the most. Is there any difference between the way you live your life in our community and the way your neighbors live their lives? Where you live, work, and play? If not, it's time. And if you're concerned about it, that's good. That means the Holy Spirit's working. And there's never too late. You see, it's all about a heart's posture towards the wonder of the cross. Lately, I've I've really grown to love a lot of Charles Wesley's hymns. We sing them all the time. And I think had I lived back then, I would have been a Methodist within the Anglican Church. But I would have hung around Charles because John would have bugged me. He was just a little too intense on several fronts. Master organizer, yes. Super, I mean, amazing used of God. But Charles was amazing in all the hymns that he wrote to be used for the glory of God. And one of my favorites has recently become, And Can It Be? The third, we sing that every now and then, the third stanza, I think, perfectly describes a Christian's posture towards the cross, their view of the cross, when he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, I woke, and I followed thee. Amazing grace. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Aren't those anointed words? Do you believe that? You see, that's the point, my friends, that the posture for that rescue that Jesus has done for us is what Jesus is starting in his disciples right here in this passage. Where you're going, I cannot come, boy. You cannot come, boys. And because of that, anticipating their insecurity, he gives them a new command. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. This new command has both a dynamic and an impact. The dynamic is that it's, it's new. It's not simply additional. 
but it's different and it's fresh and it's unique. Anglican scholar Leon Morris from Sydney, Australia says it well. Jesus is not speaking here of love to all people, but love within the community of believers. Love itself is not a new commandment, but an old one from Leviticus 19.18. The new thing appears to be the mutual affection that Christians have for one another on account of Christ's great love for them. Jesus himself has set the example. He calls on them now to follow in his steps. That we are Jesus to one another in the church here even at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Because there's four words in the Greek for love. As Rod Whitaker, the, my New Testament uh, professor at Trinity, often would say, there's a reason why Jesus didn't come in Middle English or Shakespearean English. Okay? Because I say, you know, things like, I love the Indians. I don't think they're going to make it. Astros look really good right now. Um, I love that ball club. Oh, you know. It's super, but it's not the same love as I have for Kimmy. But in the Greek that was expressed here, there is four different words that could be used for love that really communicate well what's going on here. The first use, which Jesus doesn't use, is phileo love. Phileo, we get the word city of brotherly love, Philadelphia from that. It's the band of brother love. If you've gone through an experience with somebody like medical school, nursing school, combat in the military, that whole band of brothers, you have a special love for those people you've, you've walked through life with. Secondly, there's eros love. That's sexual love between lovers together. There's storge, it's the familial love of a family, a love, a parent for child, child for parents, the love that's around the Thanksgiving table, you know, that's storge love. And then there's the love that Jesus is speaking about here, which is agape, the unconditional, unmerited love that seeks the highest good for the other. This kind of love refuses to respond negatively to the other refuses to reject the other, refuses to demand conditions, and refuses to nitpick the lint off of someone's soul. Jesus says, as I have loved you, setting himself up as the standard by which they are forever to measure how they are loving one another. He is telling them, I left the beauty and splendor of heaven. Because I love you. I called you mine, knowing full well your thoughts, you stubborn, stiff-necked people. I corrected you when you stepped out of line, and I washed your feet on my way to my death. All for your highest good. My interest was not myself, but yours. That's the dynamic of this love that we're to have for one another as Jesus is our standard. But what's the impact? In a word, it's incredible. It's verse 35. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. That's incredible because no one can ignore authentic love. It extends to 
all people, and nothing is more impressive than unselfish action and affection within the body of Christ. See, we don't come here on Sundays just to check off the church box. We come here to meet the Lord in His Word, in His sacrament, through the, 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 the Scripture that we pray together in the liturgy, and in one another, and to serve one another. The world will know. That word know does not refer to merely intellectual information, but rather to knowledge gained by first-hand knowledge. Rubbing shoulders with people who have rubbed shoulders with people in the church. That's how they'll know that we belong to Jesus, is that we love one another. Because a cross around the neck links us to a religion. But love links us to Jesus himself. And ladies and gentlemen, you can't do that in isolation. This is where this really goes after that American evangelicalism that says, oh, I'm, I'm coming half the month. I'm doing great. Actually, according to this word, you're not. How are you working out the, the one another's of Scripture if you're only here half the time? If you're only with your wife half the time, men, you would hear it, and she wouldn't think that you love her. Okay? I'm calling balls and strikes henceforth, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for not only Christ church, because look at all the empty seats. Okay? Let's call it for what it is. It's unbelief. How are we working out the one another's together? There's so many good things happening here at Christ Church. Don't get me wrong. Our attendance is up. All right. Our attendance is up uh, significantly, 15% this year. Our small group attendance is phenomenal. And all of our small groups, you know, our Tuesday women are 20 plus. Our Wednesday groups, we've got three groups now of people meeting together rather than just one journey group. Our, our Avon Lake group is close to 40 now even. The men's study on Wednesdays has close to 12. And we've reignited uh, the oldest standing Bible study in this church meets at Bob Schaefer's house on Saturday mornings. We got four guys, five guys that are there. I encourage us to check it out, men. God is doing good work. But there's a significant number of people that would call themselves members of Christ Church that don't get this. They don't get the one another's yet. So we need to love them and call them to it and ask them if it's a spouse of yours, if it's a friend of yours, just ask. How are you working out the one another of Scripture? How's that work in isolation? It can't be done. And so, over this next year, we're starting to think through what Spurgeon said there's no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers here below. So, over the next year, we'll be implementing very slowly but teaching every step of the way what it means to be a follower of Jesus and a member of his church in a biblical way. Not who we were at 468, but who we are today here at Christ Church. And some people will think this is radical. 
The reality is it's just normal Christianity. Look, the world will always look at you as radical. Okay? But when it comes to the lesser sacraments, for example, you want to have your baby baptized. You want your child or grandchild to have first communion. You, you want your child to get confirmed. Great. Get here every Sunday. We've got three services. Pick one. Because it's a presenting issue of belief right off the bat. Are they here? Now, being in church doesn't make a person a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. But it's a great first step. And it's prioritizing what it means to honor the Lord's day because that's exactly what's going on in Isaiah 58. Israel is being disciplined for their lack of obedience of honoring the Sabbath. (laughs) The Lord says, going your own way. So the reality is we want to make sure that people know Christ, are following Christ together, and it first starts with prioritizing this time on Sunday morning as the highlight of the week. Not last night on Saturday night, not 1 o'clock kickoff or 4 o'clock kickoff or whatever Sunday evening show you like. If you like Poldark, great, but that's not the highlight of the week. Highlight of the week is the whole day from Saturday at 6 to where I lay my head down tonight. And we're each going to do it a different way. And of course, there's going to be some who have to work on Sundays. I get that. And of course, there'll be days you're sick or you're traveling. That's called providential hindrances. I get that. But it's taking this day and prioritizing it and preparing for it. Circling it on your calendar. Putting it on your iCal as from 6 o'clock to the time you lay your head down tonight as a day of rest, ceasing from work, gathering together with your people, and ministering to one another as God gives you opportunity and others throughout the day as you're given opportunity. That is abundant life. And our salvation costs us nothing, but to be a Christian will cost us everything. So first, we look to the cross. We trust in that alone for our salvation. In every day of our lives as we walk in the grace. Because we're saved by grace and we're sanctified by grace. Right? There's no perfect people here. Right? And we walk with Jesus in this life of community. So I want to encourage us. A way to do that is to set this day aside and take Thursday, Friday, and Saturday and begin to prepare your heart. We're going to start sending out the e-news on Wednesdays so that you'll see the scripture text. And I I guarantee you what's going to happen. Every now and then you're going to read that text for the upcoming Sunday, and you're going to say, "Eh." Just say, Lord, speak to me as I come among your people. And Thursday and Friday and Saturday, read it and, and chew on it. See what the Lord might want to do. And then we come together on Sundays. You can let the Lord speak to you through the word read, through the word preached, through the word sang, through the word in the liturgy. Because that's all we're doing is praying scripture in the liturgy, right? Okay? 
and let the Lord speak to you. And then afterwards on Sunday, share as a family how God spoke to you and how God spoke through you to others. Have that posture turning out to bless somebody here at 11 o'clock or outside these walls. Just be available. Just be available. And then on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, reflect. Write down how God spoke to you. That's what the sermon notes are for. Just and, and chew on that for a few days and let it begin to go into action steps so you can go forth and be a blessing. Because the Christian life is like grapes, not marbles. Anne Ortland was the mom of Ray Ortland. Ray is the pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville. He's one of my heroes. He's a great preacher. And really, they've done an amazing job there in downtown Nashville. And his mom was a prolific author. She wrote in a book about worship, Christians can be grouped into two categories, marbles and grapes. Marbles are single units that don't affect each other except in collision. Grapes, on the other hand, mingle juices. Each one is part of the fragrance of the church body. The early Christians didn't bounce around like loose marbles ricocheting in all directions. Picture them as a cluster of ripe grapes squeezed together by persecution bleeding and mingling into one another. You know, if you have a bag of marbles in a paper bag, you stick them in a dark closet for three months, you go back to that closet three months later, you pull out that marbles, what are you going to have? Marbles. Unchanged. The same marbles. No difference whatsoever. You take a bunch of ripe grapes, put them in a paper bag, put them in that dark closet for three months, you go back and you pull it out, what are you going to have? Great mush, right? Yeah, left there for a long enough time, what's it going to become? Ah. It's the same thing in the church, my friends. It's just the drip, drip, drip of the gospel mingling together as God's people, coming into one in the body of Christ. And it isn't Mogan David. It is perfectus. Beautiful for the world to see. Love the Lord. Let us love one another unconditionally. And watch what happens. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've taught us how to prepare well by first loving you and loving one another. For we need one another. And Lord, there may be someone here who has never fully placed their trust in you. I ask that this would be the day that happens that we trust you as our Savior and Lord, because you can't be just Savior. You're Lord of our lives, and you call us to die to ourselves, and I pray that we would do that even on Sundays, so that you can be Lord of our lives. And we can work out the details of our Sundays, for we know there's nothing aberrantly sinful about turning on the TV, but yet, Lord, if that's the focus, that's a problem. We pray that we would let you speak to us through your word. And that, Lord God, we can celebrate this day together as your people powerfully. As we place our trust in you alone and your atoning work upon the cross. And love one another, empowered by your Holy Spirit. For your honor and glory. And may this West Shore region know that we are your people because of the way we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.